I'm Charlie Redding. And I'm Claire Fudge. And this is the Tribe Athlon Podcast. Um, so sometimes people have a lot of digestive issues when they run in the heat, but they don't make the connection that it is because of the heat. Um, you, so you can actually prepare for that in advance. That was Elizabeth Barnes, and this episode is Desert Racing and Relationships. Hey Claire, how are you doing? Yes, good, thank you. How are you? I am good, thank you. Good. I am. I am somewhat frazzled by cycling in the absolutely scorchio heat this morning um, in Chicago. We've got like weather alerts going on left, right, and centre for a hurricane last night, and now it's heat alerts are popping up on my phone from from the US government. But um, so I am. I'm drinking my electrolytes and recovering sensibly. But um, yeah, I am. I am frazzled environmental training aren't you like getting training in the heat yes I, that's what i that's what i was thinking actually i was thinking that this is uh, this is definitely good heat training uh, yeah. but how are you you raced at the weekend tell me all about I it how... um, i still <laughs> dom's on the second day is worse getting downstairs i'm finding um yeah raced a very hilly course at the weekend i actually loved it actually it was a really Really, really enjoyed the race. Um, so tell everyone what race, what your race you were doing. I did um, 70.3 Staffordshire in the UK. Um, also entered for Poland the same weekend. So for any of you that have got a million races that have been pulled over from the year before, um, yeah, this was one of those weekends. I obviously didn't do both. I don't think anyone's got as many races deferred <laughs> and rolled over as you have, Claire. <laughs> I think that, well, yeah, maybe they're coming to an end. But um, yeah, it was, it was certainly... Um, it was an interesting day and we actually had some really nice weather. So it was really good, but huge, like a huge field. And I don't, um, I don't really race 70.3 distance, not very much, but I seem to have quite a few of those races on. So for me, I had no idea who was racing the field. I don't know my age group. Um, yeah, huge age group, age group, the biggest age group I've raced in probably. Um, but great, like really good atmosphere. I would say that, like, I didn't know really what to expect. Um, it was a nightmare with transitions, but like split transitions. But other than that, it was really lovely, really friendly. And yeah, great, a great, a great day. Excellent. And did you race as well as you hoped to? <laughs> well, um, yeah, in my head, in my head, I was in the top three all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> um, like to be fair to myself, you know, coming back from COVID three weeks ago, I actually am feeling really fit and really healthy. So, the, you know, following that protocol, um, and again, for anyone that has got COVID, I, you know, just take your time to recover because that pays dividends. And actually doing that, I had a really good race and I did feel, I felt really good. Um, but um, yeah, I was seventh, having thought I was in the top three. So I had a conversation in my head, I can't possibly go to Utah and Kona, but that's fine. That's out the question now. So that's okay. It's a decision made. Um, yeah, a really yeah the girls in my age group were particularly good um so um should have gone to Poland I think <laughs> well, but but so this is an interesting point isn't it because you were really happy with the way you were racing and your own time mm-hmm. until you compared it to anybody else's so yeah isn't comparison the uh 
the route to to unhappiness or something like that is that what 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 were your what were your thoughts around that Mm. so psychologically because I'm extremely competitive unless unless I'm at the top I'm not happy so that is difficult but actually I I did I actually from a psychological perspective I actually think I'm in a really good place with it because I had a fantastic run and my run is usually something that I really struggle with from a psychological perspective but I have been working on that and actually I had a really good run and I felt like I was coming in in the top three and I think actually you can only race these there on the day at the end of the day um but I'm actually I'm you know I'm happy I'm happy because I'm healthy as well and I think that's really important you know the fact that having had COVID three weeks ago the fact that I can go out and race and still put out a good race is for me is fantastic that is a really good point because um uh, Kerry Sutton has just sent me um somebody that we need to try and get on the podcast actually mm-hmm. um uh, former ultra runner um has gone out into the jungle and worked with tribe like Shane Benzie kind of mm-hmm. looking at mm-hmm. um you know really really but he was a very top runner and he's had long covid he got covid right at the start and two years later he's still struggling to even climb the stairs let alone run yeah. um so you know you're absolutely right you, you can um Count your blessings that you're you're racing as well as you are as quickly after COVID as you are. So um And you know, at the end of the day, you can only you can only race your best and you can only race who turns up at the race as well. And this is one thing that I always say. But on that point, another really interesting fact that I just want to bring up or point for discussion is we've talked before, haven't we, about like collecting data, what do you do with the data? Are we actually too led by all these kind of gadgets that we have and we've talked about you know the aura ring that you have and you know our garmin watches what do they tell us about sleep and actually on race day um for some unknown reason because it never happens in training of course my power meter didn't pick up on my garmin so i could choose to panic on a hilly course it's not ideal not to have that information in front of me um but actually going off feel and actually being intuitive about what you're doing and trusting yourself and your body and knowing your body really well I think is is actually invaluable and that's one of the things that actually um I often say to athletes as well that when we talk about food when people are weighing things out or using apps to track things actually be be intuitive go with your hunger go with if you do want to eat if you don't want to eat whether I should have some more whether I don't need any more um so that that for me actually was actually a really good race because I didn't go, I don't think I went, well, I've got no idea, actually. I don't think I went super crazy on the bike. Um, I probably went a bit under what I should. But the fact that I knew what probably what those watts felt like, I think, I was around about where I should have been on the bike, albeit maybe 10 minutes slower. But <laughs> it, it, it is actually a good point. I mean, I, I am not as strict when I'm racing as you, as you are, and particularly when I'm training about um hitting power levels which i know i should be more but it is a good point to to train without the data in front of you sometimes Mm. so that you can then assess and go right okay actually Mm. you know i did go slightly under or actually that's what it you know and in fact brett brett sutton was famous for getting his athletes to train on feel a lot more wasn't he um and I, I honestly, like I could have panicked about it and I did spend a little bit of time trying to like reconnect and stuff. And actually I thought, you know what? I, I can do this. I do know what it feels like to push too hard. And I do know what it feels like to probably be coasting. 
So I just had to go with it. So good. that to me, I think was, it was a really good weekend of learning and just coming out and thinking, yeah, I'm healthy enough to race. And that is brilliant. So brilliant. brilliant. Um, and, um, and so to move on to a different subject, did you see the sub seven and the sub eight? Yes, I did. I was so like interested as well to kind of follow what happened. Um, it was really interesting. I, I didn't quite know how they do it, but actually when I, when I was watching it, I was like, yeah, actually this is how they were going to do it. Um, in terms of, um, you know, drafting and having teams around them. Um, it was, it was really fun as well. It was really it fun was. to watch. It was, I thought it was great race. I thought, I love the way the format in the, in that you'd got, you know, Joe, Joe against Kristen and, yeah. and, um, Kat against Nicola and so the, that made it really interesting as opposed yeah. to just, I mean, like with um, Kipchoge, I mean, yeah. that was fascinating mm. as he got towards the end. But mm. for the majority of the two hours, it was like, well, you know, it's not yeah. that interesting. Whereas the racing element, and I think also that the racing element probably brought more out of them than than where yeah. Elliot Kipchoge was just on his own. Um but I did think it was brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant that Joe Skipper could step in with something like 10 yeah, yeah. days notice, wasn't it? I mean, that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, and he really, he nailed the bike, didn't he? He did incredibly well on the bike. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, and then... And, no, carry on. Well, I was just going to say, but, you know, and you'd got Matt, with Kristen's bike, you've got Matt Bottrell in the, in the setup. In fact, I'm going to try yeah. and get Matt back on the... Um, on uh another podcast oh yeah um, no, i was thinking just to chat to him about that yeah. because i think that's um that that will be really interesting to kind of understand what they were doing behind the scenes there mm-hmm. but the but the best bit has to be nicola passing cat and then cat passing nicola that yeah. to me was the uh i mean that she looked like she'd gone and then she just absolutely stepped it up yeah. and it, it was brilliant yeah and I think that's the kind of bit, as you talked about, that bit of racing that, when I say bit, like two of them racing against each other, I think that that probably was the key to it as well, wasn't it? Yeah. And and also fascinating and interesting for people watching. Um, I think so. Be- I mean, I, I was amazed that there wasn't more people watching it, actually. I think live, when I, when I was watching it live, it was saying something like 27,000 people were watching it on Facebook Live. But, I mean, you think how many people watched Kipchoge do his sub two. I mean, I know it's not as prominent uh, a a thing, um, but it was also uh, talked about. It was talked about for a long time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And of course, it they tried before and failed. So, uh, and I get that that that's you know it's a bigger sport, but I was just surprised that there wasn't more people watching it live um, than than there were. But um, no, I thought it was absolutely amazing, and to to knock that much time off off mm-hmm. um boat i mean there was never any doubt that they were going to come in under seven after after sort of three quarters of the way through the bike was there i mean joe skipper called the his predicted his bike time and everyone was like no no chance that's obscene and then he hit he hit it and yeah. some didn't he it was incredible but it'd be interesting now you know like any record and i know it's not it's not the same as in a iron man race scenario but or that distance sort of scenario but it will be interesting now that those times have been set what happens yeah but well, yes you're you're right and and i said the same about um the sub two but we've not had a sub two marathons okay. since have we um but 
yeah, I, I think you're right. I have to admit, though, I, I didn't like uh, Kristen's bike. That is the ugliest <laughs> dry bike I have I think I've ever seen. Didn't do a bad um, job, though. No, it, I mean, it clearly worked. <laughs> but it looked like an electric bike. I mean, well, maybe that's why he did so Maybe well. it was. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Right. Well, let's, that, that um, leads us nicely into the, the interview with Elizabeth Barnes. So let's dive into that next. Thirty Three Fuel produce award-winning natural sports nutrition, and everything they do is led by their philosophy for performance, for health, and for a fitter future. Thirty Three Fuel's awesome products have been fueling triathletes since two thousand and twelve, as well as many of the world's best athletes from other sports, like the England football team, Tour de France winners, and triathlon world champs, including four times Ironman uh, world champ Chrissy Wellington, who's been using Thirty Three Fuel for years. Um, I personally love their products. I particularly love their uh, protein shake. I think it's delicious, but it's also not full of a load of junk. Um, I love their um, meal replacement, which is kind of brilliant for pre or post workout recovery. Um, I love their chia gels. Actually, they work really well for me, but especially I love their energy bars and their protein bars. They feel like um, a proper treat to eat as well as being packed full of real amazing goodness. So find out more about 33fuel.com and if you use the code TRIBEATHLON or click the link in the show notes, you'll get a very extra special discount on your order. Having won races like Marathon de Sables, the Oman Desert Marathon and the Big Red Run in Australia, whilst also setting multiple course records, Elizabeth Barnes was an accomplished ultra runner by anyone's standards. But why, having grown up in Scandinavia, has she achieved all of her success in the desert? Since retiring from ultra running during COVID, in addition to her ultra coaching, she's qualified as a sexologist and is aiming to help people transform their relationships and upgrade their sex lives. So Claire and I wanted to get to the bottom of the secrets to succeeding in desert races, shaving the toothbrush as it's termed in ultra running, as well as how to make a living from running and also how endurance sport can affect our relationships. So I know you're going to really take loads out of this interview, particularly if you're ever looking to race in the desert, um, like whether it's marathon de samples or something else like that, um, then Elizabeth has got loads of tips on succeeding in those multi-day races. So I know you're going to really enjoy this interview with Elizabeth Barnes. So Elizabeth, welcome to the Tribe Athlon podcast. I'm really, really looking forward to chatting to you about all things ultra running and a few different topics as well. Uh, obviously, we've got Claire here as well um, to help me negotiate what can be some uh, interesting topics of conversation. Um, so, But I always like to kick things off by understanding a little bit more about your story. So how did you get into running and then how did you find your way into ultra running, which is where you really had your greatest successes, I think, isn't it? So tell us all about how, how it all started. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, first, let me say thank you for getting me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, how did I get into running? Well, uh, I suppose it's a 
it's a long time ago. <laughs> so I started running in my teens, um, mostly as a way to sort of just uh, just keep uh, keep fit. Um, and I discovered that I enjoyed uh, sort of longer distances. And at that time, that was half marathon and marathons. And I ran my first marathon in 2002 in Stockholm. And uh, that sort of uh, made me want to do more of that. So I I kept running marathons um, and uh, just for fun because I uh, I um, had a demanding work. So I, I started after university. I started to work as a management consultant for Accenture. Long working hours. You know, you dedicate most of your life to work. <laughs> um, and it was great, but but there wasn't like that much time for for other things. But so I was running, and um, uh, and and what happened? What brought me into ultra running? Um, but actually, before you come onto that, just to give people yeah. a bit of reference, what sort of times were you doing in those in those marathons? Maybe your first time, and your and as fast as you got as a marathon runner. Oh yeah, so my first marathon was four oh seven, and. Uh, then before I started doing ultra marathons, I was down to about three ten, I think, or maybe three oh eight, something like that. Yeah. And then I did a two fifty nine, but that was and that was in twenty fifteen after I came back from Marathon de Sable. Ah, okay, wow, fantastic! Yeah, but that's the fastest marathon I've done. I know that I was faster in twenty seventeen, but I never ran a marathon. So, but you yeah. got the sub three. Yeah, I did. Not only. <laughs> Which must have been, I'm, I'm guessing that that was a, a mental goal somewhere along the line. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Um, you know, it's it's funny how it means so much, um, how it makes such a difference, you know, 259, 59 or 3, like, 0001, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it does. Awesome, awesome. Uh, and so, yeah, so how did you then migrate from marathon running into ultra running? Yeah, so um, so I think I had been sort of pondering, I think, like, you know, running faster or running further because there comes a point when you run enough marathons, I think you start to wonder what else you can do because a marathon is a marathon. It's not that interesting, you know. Um, but but what really sort of accelerated it was that uh, my father passed away in 2010 um, and it was like really, really sudden. Like he wasn't expected, you know, he was 68 and he, you know, I, I, he wasn't like ill as such. Um, and that I think made me reflect a lot on life, the meaning of life. You know, I guess I was faced very directly with this existential threat that is death you know and and I questioned everything I was like what's the meaning of life what's the meaning of what I'm doing am I making the right choices in my life um and I it was a hard time I sort of started to search for a bigger meaning and um uh, and I I'm not sure exactly how it happened but I came I came across this Marathon de Sable documentary with James Cracknell. So I think he did it in 2010, so it was a little bit later. Uh, I came across that and I was like, I felt, I just felt something. I felt like, yeah, 
this is this is maybe what I have been looking for, you know, like to run 250 kilometers across the Sahara. And, you know, the documentary is very dramatic. And like, he, it's like he nearly dies. And, you know, like, and so I was like, yeah, perfect. Um, and so that's how it started. So I signed up myself. I signed up my husband, uh, now my ex-husband, my husband at the time. Um, and in training for that, I started to run ultramarathons. So I actually did my first ultramarathon in 2011, and it was a 50K race, uh, and um, it was in Stockholm. I lived in the UK then, but I traveled over to Stockholm to do it, and it went quite well. Um, I finished fourth um, and had a great time, and then I did uh, after that I did 50 miles, and then I did 100K, and then I did the Marathon de Sable for the first time in 2012. And in that first marathon de Sable, how did you get on? I I I did uh, what did I do? I I finished fifteenth woman and um like hundred I don't can't remember hundred and fifty hundred and sixty I don't know some some you know like a, a sort of a decent mid packer kind of thing yeah my backpack was huge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's something we need to talk about. I think we need to come we need to come back to uh, to that. Um, I think I was taking photos of the camels and then you know yeah. <laughs> You, you um, became renowned for your success in deserts, really, didn't you? Became, um, you know, your, I think your great, would you, would you say your greatest successes were all on desert desert races? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. So so when, we, when, when did you find, so what was it about that first MDS that kind of, um, I mean, because you, you were moving, you know, originally from a cold country, and that, so that doesn't seem like an obvious place to race so what was it about those desert races that kind of seemed to work well for you and tell us within that tell us a little bit about your successes in the desert mm. I mean I, before my first marathon the sub I was absolutely petrified you know I was so scared of the heat I had no idea how I would cope with it I did one heat acclimation session which was probably more informative than than you know providing any kind of of, of adaptation to speak of but I, I still seemed to cope quite well in the race and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. So um, I really enjoyed it. And so I guess that gave me confidence that I could do it again. And I have reflected on it sort of later. What is it that makes me good at running in the desert? Because why would I be good at that? You know, I have grown up in Scandinavia, you know, it's cold. Um, and maybe it's just genetics. I mean, it could be. Uh, I do sweat quite easily I sweat a lot and that's good in the heat um uh, and uh, maybe I have been adapted since an early age because I've spent a lot of time in saunas <laughs> <laughs> therein is your heat training <laughs> yeah I mean we we have um my family we, we have a summer house in the in the archipelago of Stockholm and, and we have this wood-fired sauna there and 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 whenever we were there, which was quite a lot, like the whole summers when I was little, you know, we did, we did, um, yeah, go in the sauna you know, quite often. And I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it or if it's just genetics, but but in any case, they seem to be quite good at handling the heat. Um, and my first, my first MDS in 2012, it, it sort of um, it made me want to do it again. Um, I thought they could do better. 
uh, at the same time, it was such a fantastic memory that I was worried about going back again because I thought, how could anything become better than this? Maybe I would ruin the memory by going back and doing it again. Um, but I did decide to go back and uh, that was 2015. And uh, I did more structured training and the way I was able to do that was I... Um, I, I changed my job, not that's because of the training, that, that, that's not it, but it, it sort of, it, it helped. Um, so I, I was still working in London, but I, I switched to another company and I didn't have to travel as much. I had an internal role. Uh, the working hours were less demanding. Um, and so... At this time, I was also building up a business on the side, but uh, and it, together with my ex-husband. But somehow, we sort of we managed to make this work, and I was able to put in a few months of of uh, very consistent training. And, and I think consistency is like the most important thing with training. Um, and I don't suppose that I had a great belief in myself. You know, I didn't think that I would win it, but I I did I did set a few course records in early 2015 leading up to that race and so everybody was like oh you're gonna go to the MNES you're gonna win it and I was like no like <laughs> but I was kind of hoping for like maybe a top five uh, you know of the women um but um but yeah then I won every stage of that race um and that's what sort of I, I suppose that was like the start of my ultra running career Mm. Um, yeah amazing and, and so what uh what do you think was the highlight of your ultra running career both from a um achievement point of view but also perhaps from a racing uh environment as well uh, so i definitely think that that was um uh well i mean I, you can look at it in different ways but i going back to Marathon de Sable and winning it for a second time. Um, for me, that was like confirmation that it wasn't just, you know, luck uh, because it felt a bit like that in 2015, like, you know, <laughs> oh, what just happened here? Like it was some kind of accident. Um, but I think in 2015, I proved that it wasn't an accident. You know, it was a very competitive race um, and I had trained and prepared meticulously uh, and I went there with the mindset that I was that I wanted to win, and uh, I don't know really what I could have done better uh, in my preparations. And so, uh, and the race kind of confirmed that. So uh, I think that's a, that's a highlight. At the same time, I was doing what I'm good at, which is running in the desert. Um, and I mean, you, you should do what you're good at, but I have also challenged myself to do things I'm not so good at, which is, you know, like running in the mountains. And so, um, from that perspective, uh, I really enjoyed doing the Everest trail race in Nepal because it's something that, you know, was way out of my comfort zone and I haven't historically been very good at altitude, um and uh, I still managed to do really well in that race. And so uh, and, and I really loved 
the like the environment and the people and you know everything about Nepal is just fantastic. So that's also a highlight. Claire and I were chatting to Kerry about the uh, the um, the race through Nepal to to Everest Base Camp. Tell us a little bit about that race because Kerry, I know um, Kerry Sutton, I'm talking about for those people that haven't worked that out, uh, was like loved that race just from an experience point of view. And I have to, we, we were listening to her talking about it I, uh, over a few glasses of wine after the Arc 50 down in Cornwall. And it was like, yeah, that's got to be a race that has got to go on the list. So tell us a little bit about what that race is like. Well, it's um, it's not entirely self-sufficient like the MDS to begin with. So you carry your gear, but you do get food. Um, so that means you have a slightly lighter backpack, even though you, you need to have warmer equipment. Um, and you I can't I can't remember I know they have changed the course now as well so I can't speak to like exactly where the course goes but um but you start sort of a little bit lower um maybe like 1500 2000 um and you work your way uh, up and uh, you you pass uh, uh, over 4,000 meters, and I think the highest camp was around 3,800 meters. Um, and you have, I mean, there's a, it's, a, it's sort of, I don't know, uh, quite typical, I don't know if you can say like typical uh, trails or route where you have a lot of uh, steps, it's a lot of rocks, um, and, uh, you know, you, you meet, uh, you see the porters, uh, the sherpas, and uh, and uh, you know the kind of local animals, and it's it's uh, it's a really humbling experience. And people are very poor uh, generally, but very 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 friendly and generous. Um, and it's um, uh, yeah, it, you just feel sort of. Be grateful and like it's a privilege to be able to to be there uh, really and and the race is quite small so it's like a family kind of thing you know it's, mds is really big and you sort of bond with your tent mates but but the Everest trail race is a much smaller race so and obviously the scenery is, is very different isn't it i mean is that part yeah. of the magic you know with the mds i would imagine i've never done it but I imagine there's a lot of looking across deserts whereas looking through mountains is a whole different experience. Yeah. I mean, the desert is, the desert is, is, is beautiful in its own way. Um, but it's quite different to look out over a, this arid, vast desert landscape versus being in the mountains. Um, for sure. Yeah. It's maybe in the mountains. I mean, it's, it's perhaps a bit more, or varied and and of course the mountains of the Himalayas are just incredible so very impressive mm. landscape. Mm. Do you do any specific because obviously those races are very different environmentally did you mm. do anything um, in particular to kind of get ready for um, the environment in so like heat exposure I know you talked about saunas and growing up in saunas but did you do any um, particular training for um, 
more desert-based races and then anything different that you did from kind of more of those higher altitude races is there anything mm-hmm. you're training yeah so <clears throat> whenever I've, I've gone to uh, a race in the heat I've always prepared for that specifically so that uh, that could mean uh, going and running in a heat chamber um, doing hot yoga mm-hmm. uh, taking hot baths uh, which is particularly effective if you do it after training uh, because you've already reduced your plasma volume a bit um uh going in the sauna um which is probably what i've done the least actually but hot yoga hot heat chambers and hot baths i've done um and that's something i try to do particularly in the last kind of two to three weeks before a race um and then i've noticed that the more frequently i've done such races the more the the sort of the acclimation stays in the body, so it takes less to prepare for next time. More quickly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's super, super important. And I think uh, too many people neglect it. They don't think it's going to make a difference, but it actually makes an enormous difference. Um, not only to your general sort of performance, um, but it actually impacts your ability to digest food, which people don't realize. Um, so sometimes people have a lot of digestive issues when they run in the heat, but they don't make the connection that it is because of the heat. Um, you, so you can actually prepare for that in advance, um, which is kind of not so often mentioned in relation to heat acclimation, but nevertheless important. One of the things um, we've talked about in previous episodes is the... Um, yeah, because a previous sponsor was precision hydration we've talked a bit about sweat testing and the amount you sweat as well as the, how salty your sweat is do you find that and i don't know if this is even possible but when you do a sweat test you find out how much you're sweating is it that when you do spend more time doing hot yoga and saunas and things like that that you almost train your body to sweat more or is it a constant and i don't know maybe claire can um, give us some insight on this as well. So, as far as I understand, you you train your body to sweat earlier, so you get like a faster sweat response, um, so okay. that because that helps the body to cool down. So, what actually cools you down is the evaporation of the sweat from the body, mm. so not the sweating itself. So, you know, if you're in a humid environment and you sweat a lot, you still don't get very cool because the sweat stays. Yeah. Um, but if you go in a dry environment, you can cool down in that way. But yes, yeah, so you sweat. You sweat earlier, um, but also the, the body conserves sodium. So the more uh, acclimated you are, like the less sodium you lose through your sweat. So, yeah, and so actually, a period of time as well, doesn't it? So it depends on how long how long that race is and that, and that adaptation to um, conserving a bit more sodium. I mean, your body's just amazing, isn't it? The, the you know all the processes it has to be able to. Um, try and try and sort you out so um but it, but it's interesting yeah. and it's, it's it's clearly very important to give it advanced warning of all of the chaos you're about to throw at it so if you can get it acclimatized and then it clearly makes a big difference mm-hmm. yeah makes it makes a huge makes a huge difference i mean i think it's especially for a race like the marathon de sable you know it's so expensive a lot of people spend you know a, a year or, or more preparing for it and then 
to leave something like that to chance and actually use the race to acclimatize, I mean, it's just such a waste, uh, I think, of, <laughs> of good preparation that you could do. Um, and uh, you asked about altitudes. Mm. What, did well, you do, what did you do? Yeah, what did you do for that to sort of prepare yourself for that environment? Yeah. So with altitude, you know, with heat, you can acclimatize relatively quickly. I mean, there's research showing that, you know, even just a five-day protocol can prepare you for the heat. Mm -hmm. But altitude doesn't work like that. It takes a lot longer for the body to adapt. Mm -hmm. um, and so for the Everest Trail Race, I think I had about 10 weeks at altitude before that. And so I had about five weeks in Tenerife in the summer. So Tenerife... Um, for those who haven't been there, it's it's really great for altitude training because you have the Teide National Park and it's a big like plateau that sits at about 2,000 meters of elevation. Um, so it's really, really perfect because, um, you know, you can go there almost any time of year um, and there might be a little bit of snow and Teide in the winter, but, you know, you, you can be there. And so I think it's very accessible. And then um, I did a race in Colorado uh, the Trans Rockies, which was uh, also uh, a, a quite high. So I spent a couple of weeks in um, Leadville at about 3,000 meters uh, before that race. And then I did the race. And then I had another couple of weeks in Tenerife in October. And then I went to Everest Trail Race in November. So actually, when I, and I appreciate like most people can't actually do these things. So I was lucky that I was able to do all of it. Um, and I think I also did a few sessions at the Altitude Center in London. You know, you can basically go into an altitude chamber and you can run on a treadmill um, or sit in a little pot and breathe through a mask and stuff like that. So all in all, I did a lot and it really worked. Um, I felt reasonably comfortable even like climbing up uh, the Pikey Peak, which is like 4,000 something. Yeah. So... Fantastic. That's really that's really good. You mentioned at the start of, when we of talking about MDS that you had a huge pack that first time. Mm. Uh, now I think the term in ultra running is shaving the toothbrush, isn't it? So you just got to try and find every way possible of kind of getting the pack as light as possible. Um, when you're coaching athletes nowadays, do you uh, what tips do you give them around you know packing? Because a friend of mine just did MDS for the first time this year. It's his first, you know, he's been, he's like the person you just described. He'd not been doing any ultra running and he trained exclusively for MDS. Uh, and he didn't take anything like enough food because he was really worried about pack weight. And it actually, that nearly mm -hmm. lost him. So how, what advice do you give athletes or, or around packing? Um, well, I mean, you have to really, you have to pack light. I mean, you, and, and it's easy to say that, um, but I, for MDS, I do a, a I usually have done that the last couple of years, like a, a workshop and like talk about kit for three hours. And because there really is so much that, that you can talk about in terms of kit and packing light. Um, so I think, um, um, I mean, if now with social media, you know, it's so easy to find information. Sometimes there's too much information out there, but uh looking at what people have packed previously and what their pack weighed, I think is important. And it's important that you sort of take um, advice from someone who's a bit similar to yourself, I think, you know, not like, uh, yeah, 
look at who you're taking advice from, you know, and their experience and their race ambitions. Um, but for MDS, I usually say that it's not it's not difficult to get your pack down to the minimum weight, which is six and a half kilos. It's really not difficult. And I don't think that anybody needs to carry more than eight kilos unless you have very unusual requirements for some reason, you know, that you need to carry some equipment or some medication or something. Um, but otherwise, it's not difficult. To, uh, everybody should be able to go with less than eight kilos, Brilliant. no matter so, their size. You know? So where, where do people find out more about your work? Because that sounds like, the, like as and when I sign up for my Desert Ultra, which is a, is a definite when, not if. Uh, where, where do I find your workshop that helps me get that get down to six and a half kilos? Uh, yeah, so at the moment it's not pre-recorded; it's only live, um, and so I haven't set the date for the next one. But I usually announce it on my social media. So if if people follow ultra ultra.coach on Instagram, for example, or my Facebook page ultra.coach, or go to my website ultra.coach. <laughs> um that's where it's going to be announced brilliant well that sounds that sounds really useful i'll i'll definitely be uh needing that uh in due course now it still seems quite a lot though doesn't it six kilograms on my back seems like it would be a lot still (laughs) uh yeah but so so actually it's not it's not that bad when you get used to it and that's why it's also really important to train with your backpack and also it can be a good idea to to think about your posture when you run. Maybe you want to take help from someone like Shane Bensey, who is very good at at movement coaching. Mm -hmm. And um, he helped me before MDS 2017. Um, And so I came to the race with, I think, a much better posture than I would have had uh, otherwise. And you can actually see that in some of the photos from the race, um, how I run. Uh, So I think um, that works really well because it means that the, the... it, the pack feels like it weighs less. You know? Yeah, mm. that's pretty. Yeah, Shane's been on the podcast as well. Shane's fantastic, isn't he? Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I can I can see how that would make a massive because I suppose yeah, your posture makes a massive difference to how much weight is re- you're really carrying as opposed to kind of almost letting letting gravity pull you forward. Yeah, and and also the food. You know, the food takes up a lot of weight, and and people might not realize it, but I. You know, it's important to not skimp on the food because you need the calories at the same time, you know, not, of course, overload with food. But for an example, if my pack weighs six and a half kilos, that would be like 4.2, 4.3 kilos of food and the rest would be equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the equipment is a smaller part of it. And what's good about that is that the food, you eat it, right? So, so every lighter. day your pack weight goes down with six, 700 grams. Um Whereas if you distribute your weight differently, that weight is not going to go down as much. You know? Sounds like a good reason to have a feast on the first couple of nights as well, but yeah, uh, uh, or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then at risk of running out like my mate did. <laughs> um, now, one of the things I picked up from listening to you on a podcast is that um, you ended up giving up the corporate life uh, to make a, a living purely from running. Um, mm. Tell me a little bit about that. How does that, how do people... How did you make a living from running? Yeah. Um, so it was a gradual transition, first of all. Um, so I didn't just 
resign and sort of hope for the best. I uh, <laughs> I made sure that I I had some income from running before I resigned, and so um, I, I suppose the first thing I did was when I won the MDS in 2015. That was like my springboard, and I could have chosen to not make anything from that. You know, I could have chosen to not do anything about it. So. A lot of people who who compete and do well, they still keep their day job and they they don't necessarily want to make a career out of running. But I wanted to do that. So so I decided to to sort of uh, see if I could do that and and to basically jump on the opportunity. Um, And so so that was like a, a conscious decision that, okay, I'm going to try and make something from this. And then I uh, got a sponsor, um, so a Raylight, and I also got uh, a shoe sponsor in Hakka. But it was like the sponsorship from Raylight, which um, provided me with something financially that gave me like this kind of lifeline that I I could have, you know. And so um, that was one thing, and then I. Uh, also because I was already a running coach before I started to win these races I was a running coach in the local club and I had a qualification from uh, UK athletics so I just sort of built on that Um, and uh, so with with the coaching and the sponsorship and I also was uh, building up a running shop from pretty much from the ground up uh, also with my ex-husband um, with those kind of three elements even though the running shop in fairness consumed more money than it gave back at that point at least um, I was I was able to to eventually resign and so I did a lot of things in parallel for a few years which was very 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 hard um, but I knew that I had sort of a the destination you know I had a goal with it so I tried to persevere and then I I resigned in 2016 so I actually left my job just before Marathon de Sable in 2016 and that was a very 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 stressful few months leading up to that so I was in terrible shape for that race unfortunately. <laughs> so, so knowing what you know now um if you were to go back to that point where you were thinking about giving up work to make a living from running, is there anything you would have done differently? Good question. Um, uh, No, I don't think so, actually. Um, It's really hard to say, you know, like what would you do differently, but uh, you don't know what the alternative path would look like you know it's like sliding doors isn't it you you know you just you make a decision and then you know it takes you on a path and you don't know what the alternative would have looked like so would I have done anything differently no I don't think so um but it was very 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 hard to um to run a shop like and I think that that maybe we went into that a bit being a bit naive you know um about how much work was actually required, how much investment was required. And so uh, I learned a lot. Um, would I do it again with what I know? No, I wouldn't do it again. 
but I don't regret it. Yeah. <laughs> so with so with the um so with the shop, which um is uh, myracekit.com, isn't it? You're you're still involved mm-hmm. in that, I assume, are you? I'm not involved as such. I'm I'm a minority shareholder. Right. Uh, I don't work in the business. Yeah. I'm yeah, I'm not involved. Oh, okay. But with with running or running a running shop, is that the right term? I'm not sure. That doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> but having been a part of a running shop, you mm. must have seen some really um, you know, you must have seen some amazing kit come through and gone, oh my god, this is really gonna make an impact on my on my ultra running and you must have also seen some kit that has been the biggest kind of load of nonsense ever and there are a couple of pieces of kit that you can think of with it within one in each of those categories um well i mean one one piece of kit i think is really really terrible uh, it's actually handheld bottles. <laughs> handheld bottles. Oh yeah, the ones. Yeah. With the, yeah. yeah. Why? Why? I, I know why I don't like them, but why do you think they're a bad idea? Uh, I think they're a really bad idea because they affect your running, but you don't realize it. So, so if you go out and run and you start to look at people who might be holding a handheld bottle in one hand, you will see that they're not moving that arm. Uh, in the same way as they're moving their other arm. And so uh, it becomes um, this, yeah, it affects their movement. And when you, you can then get stuck in that kind of pattern, even if you don't actually hold the bottle. Um, so it might be slightly better if you hold two bottles. Um, but I wonder what it does to your running to put that weight um, in your in your hands. Um, anyway um but so but so yeah i think that's a really really bad thing to have a handheld bottle and especially to only have one of them Excellent. Um, okay that's that sounds like that very very good <laughs> advice is there one piece of kit that you kind of think you know over the years that has been made the biggest piece of different the biggest difference to your um ultra life Uh, mm, like not as such. Uh, I, I, no, not as such really. But uh, not that I can think of. But but shoes are really really important. You know, getting your shoes right, um, and that can be quite quite complicated. Um, and I would imagine that you're using different shoes to for your desert race as you are for your like your Everest trail. Um, so how yeah. would you pick shoes for each of those? Yeah, I mean, so, so, and that's, I suppose it's a, for me, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't even think about it, but, but, uh, but yeah, beginners coming into ultra running, you know, might not have the same awareness of shoes or what shoes you should pick for a race. You can see people coming in, in road shoes to a muddy trail race and you go like oh wow how did this happen you know and and so you have to do your research for the type of terrain um and i think as an uh you know when you're just a road runner or like you know like a you can maybe get away with having one pair of shoes but when you start to run ultras and and if you especially if you mix different terrains 
and often ultras go over different terrains as well. I mean, then you you need to have more shoes, um, definitely, and and uh, yeah, a good uh, a good trail shoe or maybe sort of a good kind of uh, all terrain type shoe um, is um, is something to invest in if you go into ultra running and also the sizing can become a little bit different so for example i could go and do a 5k race in a size smaller than i than i run ultras in um and often you get these questions especially for mds it's like oh oh should i go up one size i've heard that i should go up one size oh maybe i should go up a size and a half what size shoe should i have you know and and it's impossible to answer that because it depends what your reference point is so if your reference point of a normal size is a snug shoe that you can run 5K in, yeah, you definitely need to go up the size. But if your reference point is a size that is quite roomy that you can run a marathon in, then maybe you don't need to go up the size. And so it's always about, you know, you need to you need to understand sort of those things and how, how running a long distance can affect your feet. And yeah, so. Okay, brilliant. Um, and I think I heard... Also on a on a podcast I was listening to, um, you say that you got to a point where running no longer made you happy. Mm-hmm. So tell tell me a little bit about where what point that was, kind of how how you realised that running was no longer making you happy, and what you then did about it. Yeah. So so first of all, I mean, I think maybe maybe it wasn't necessarily that running wasn't making me happy but I think something maybe changed um I have never been a person who needs to run some people have this need to run they have to run every day or they go crazy I'm not like that I have no need to run I have no need to run insane miles I enjoy running um but also the getting into uh you know competitive ultra running was maybe I mean, yeah, it was sort of intentional, but it was also a bit accidental, you know. <laughs> and it's quite different to run for a living and having the pressure to win races, having the pressure to please your sponsors, um, than to run just for fun. Uh, and I think a lot of people look up to professional athletes professional ultra runners and they go oh yeah I want to be like that or it's so great that they can have sponsorships and this and that but it's it's not all that glossy surface it's sort of quite hard sometimes you know um to also deliver uh and so it's nice it's nice if you can just enjoy running without much pressure I think and I suppose that um sometimes we just do things you know we just keep on working or keep on doing what we do without really reflecting on why or whether it's still the right thing to do um and i think that's maybe what was happening and then covid came and i think covid has been actually for me personally it's uh, it's triggered some good changes which I think sort of outside events can do, you know, like when my father died, like, okay, it was different, but, but, but yeah, I think it, we as humans, we tend to resist change, <laughs> yeah, but, 
when it's kind of thrown upon us, we have to do something. And uh, so with uh, when the COVID came, it gave me an opportunity to reflect on what I was doing, which was still, you know, running, training to do the MDS again, uh, definitely feeling the pressure to go back and do well again. Not entirely sure whether that's what I wanted. Um, feeling that actually all the training was not that great for my body. Um, and uh, so for me, I think it was an opportunity to to step back um, and have sort of breathing space to think about it because there, you know, all the races were cancelled anyway. And <laughs> so um, uh, I, I, it took a little while to to maybe accept that I sort of put my competitive running shoes on the shelf, but that's effectively what I've done. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's been a. I've said I've found myself talking about this three or four times this week with just different people where they COVID was an opportunity to just reevaluate things, wasn't it? It was kind of like, okay, so this is what I've been doing for the last five years, ten years, twenty years, whatever it was. Is this what I want to do for the next five years, ten years, twenty years, or whatever? Again, whatever the time frame is, and I don't know what it was. The, I mean, it's it's an external event that we all got, and some people have dealt with it very well. Some people it, it hit um, uh, in you know much more negative ways. But um, can can either of you put your finger on why COVID caused people to reevaluate their life quite so much? I think there's there's a time element to it. So a lot of people have more. Well, certain people have more time to think about it. I think there's that but also kind of um actually Elizabeth what you touched on right at the very beginning is you know kind of our lifespan and how long we've got here and, and I think that for me I think is maybe why people have reevaluated um or a couple of the reasons anyway what what are your thoughts Elizabeth yeah I mean you're you're thrown out of your daily routine you know um you 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 can't you can't carry on like you know you don't people stopped going to work there were lockdowns um you were forced to maybe spend much more time with you know your partner or family and and you maybe you discovered things about that or yourself you know mm-hmm. um and um and so much that we take for granted was just taken away from us and i think inevitably that makes you uh makes you think and and reflect and and also i think covid created more time uh in people's lives um and also we were faced with we were faced again with this with death i mean a lot of people got ill a lot of people died maybe maybe people lost um lost family but also just in a more uh general basis and then the other thing that happened was that we which i think is actually very uh, i mean i think in a way it's been sort of a collective kind of trauma because we uh, we were not able to connect with other people for so long and actually we're made for connection like it's super important for our mental health to be able to connect with other people and we weren't able to do that um which um which i think was really sad and i hope that people are are 
coming out of that now and starting to feel better. But yeah, a, lo- a lot of things that, that you know cause people to reflect on their situation and what they want from life, perhaps. I think, but I think both are really, um, yeah. If you think you've both made some really interesting points, and actually, it makes me think of when you go for coaching or something like that, or whether you're, when I'm doing leadership meetings for my business, it's always good to get a different perspective. You know, if you can sit in a, even if it's just a hotel meeting room as opposed to your own business meeting room, it's a different perspective. And I suppose COVID gave everybody time in a different perspective. And, and I think the death point, um, Elizabeth, is really, in, you know, really interesting. And in yes, people were thinking about, actually, if this was my time, have I done what I wanted to do? And I, I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, so based on that, you had a bit of a pivot, didn't you? Um, and kind of have, I don't think you've left the ultra running world because I think you're still doing all of the coaching stuff, but mm. you also have added an extra string to the bow. So tell us a bit about your, your career pivot. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm still very much doing coaching for ultra running. And uh, actually, I think perhaps not focusing so much on my own training has probably been good for the coaching in a way. Um, but yeah, so I, I I had this kind of epiphany moment in a way, I suppose, uh, during uh, when it was just when COVID kind of started to to hit and I I realized that uh, I'm in a very 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 good uh, relationship um, and and I sort of reflected on the fact that a lot of people are quite unhappy in their relationships but still you know sort of just carry on um, for various reasons and uh, so I thought that could be interesting to work with um to help people improving the the quality of their relationships the quality of their sex lives and um and so i decided to study sexology and couples therapy or relationship therapy as it's actually preferred to call it um and so i did it so i did an 18 month course with a danish school um, so I'm certified sexologist and relationship therapist. And now I've just, um, I decided, I took a little break when I finished and then I sort of had it in the back of my mind that I maybe wanted to to, to carry on and learn more because there's always more to learn, um, especially since I don't have a background in mental health. Uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything, which a lot of people are that maybe come into um, sexology. Um, and so now I'm studying a, a PhD in, in clinical sexology, which I just started. And I hadn't heard the term sexology before or sexologist. So tell me a little bit more. I mean, I think I've got a fairly good idea of what that means, but just explain what is the difference between a sexologist and a couple's therapist or a couple relationship coach or something like that? Yeah, so I mean, I think it, they all very much uh, uh, overlap. Um, but maybe, you know, if you, maybe traditionally, you know, if you go to a psychologist, if you go to a, 
a couple a couple in a couple therapists or relationship therapists you would typically go to with uh you know a partner um to solve uh you know some problem in the in the relationship um and i mean that person can also be a sexologist and and that helps because not all therapists are comfortable talking about sexuality and sex um but a lot of the time those are problems that people have and so um if you go to someone who has uh, that competence uh, then they might be able to meet you better you know and then um to not judge you or you know so that it doesn't be- also become awkward you know to to speak to someone because it's something that's very personal it's difficult for people to to talk about but as a sexologist is not a it's not a protected title so so people who are sexologists i mean they are effectively sex therapists and they um they can have different uh backgrounds um and it's not necessarily so that you are a therapist because you are a sexologist you can be an educator um or you can be a researcher uh, as well um but uh, sexology is a field that spans you know many aspects of of human sexuality so you know sexuality across the lifespan you know relationships sexual dysfunction uh, sexual disorders sexual behaviors sexual orientation gender identity sexual interests um and so uh so a sexologist might help people uh, help a client resolve what they perceive to be a sexual difficulty um maybe help people you know to grow and develop their sexuality offer information offer education um and so on brilliant and and so one of the things that i can't help but ask about and i don't i've not heard you talk about this so i'm not quite sure where we're going to end up but since getting into endurance sport, I've had a number of people say, God, that must put a huge strain on your relationship. Um, so given that you've got the experience of endurance sport and relationships, do you see that endurance sport and people, you know, becoming, you know, people would say I'm addicted to exercise and yet um, Flora College, who kind of researches addiction and, and is an ultra, well, is an ultra triathlete, um, that had a different um, definition of addicted to exercise. But where do you see that? You know, do you see a, a relationship between relationship strain and um, uh, and endurance sport? So, okay, so this would just be my my personal observations and thoughts, not any because I haven't actually looked into if there is any research in this. Uh, so, I, uh, um. But I suppose I, I talk to a lot of people as a coach, to a lot of runners, um, and uh, a lot of time, uh, ultra runners they discover it later in life, right? So it's not uncommon that you begin to to do ultra running in your forties, you know, and maybe even fifties, you know. But but a lot of people already have. They have an established family, and then they discover running, and um, and uh, I often joke and say that the Martin de Sable, you know, it's like a, you know, what you do for your midlife crisis. <laughs> um, and I think it it 
it depends you know it can be it can be a challenge for the relationship because it's it's something that takes up a lot of time right and it can take up a lot of money as well uh, it can be a very expensive sport and you know, people say oh yeah running is cheap you just need a pair of shoes well no wait till you get into <laughs> get into ultra running um so i have experienced uh, you know cases where it is a problem because um you know it takes up too much time and so if the partner isn't sharing that interest um they might not be very supportive um and then it's then it's like well why are you running you know are you running because the love of running or are you running uh, to you know to to avoid something to distance yourself from the relationship or you know um some people use running to 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 sort of self medicate um which might be much better than many other alternatives you know um and the the positive aspect of it, of it is of course that you you keep in shape or maybe you get in shape i mean sometimes people who have really fallen out of shape they find running and they get in shape uh which is really positive but can also be a problem if your partner doesn't make the same effort right <laughs> um so uh, you know i think like with everything else like if if you do if one partner does endurance sports and that you know uh, leads to friction in the relationship um or is masking some other issue um you know you need to communicate about it and it takes an average of 6 years for people to seek counseling um yeah, when they have a relationship problem so yeah but yeah i mean the running doesn't uh, i don't know i think running can be can be good and good and bad but there're definitely things to communicate about and to think about um in a relationship um yeah brilliant and and i i think i picked up from um reading a bit about how you've moved towards the sexology side of things um that you have a specialism specialism in is it polygamy? Is that how you say it? I'm not sure. Um, now, no, I would call it. I would not call it polygamy. I would call it um, consensual non-monogamy. Consensual non-monogamy. Excellent. I'll try to remember that. Thank you. So, I I once read a book years ago. I read a book called The Truth, um, an uncomfortable book about relationships, which talks a lot about consensual non-monogamy. Um, and it kind of ended up, you know, this guy, I can't remember the author's name, goes off and explores lots of different types of, you know, swinging clubs and all sorts of different things. And he ends up coming full circle by the end and coming back to um, the fact that a monogamous relationship was actually the happiest he was in that journey. So talk to me a little bit about how you've specialised in this area and, you know, what are more people embracing consensual non-monogamy? Was monogamy? That <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it is. Uh, I think now you see, you start to see more and more uh, about it. I think there are a lot of articles in 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 just sort of mainstream media. Um, which is uh, which is great. Um, so it's starting to get some 
some attention. Um, it's uh, it's not for it's not for everybody, and also you know it's not like one thing. It's definitely like very very many things. It's certainly a, a sliding uh, scale, um, but uh, I I think that generally speaking, I think that society provides you know a very rigid template for what a relationship should look like um you know we should find the one you know with the one exists and then you know we should stick to that person you know preferably for life but definitely for a long time because we measure the quality of relationship by how long they are and that's why also i think people have this tendency to stay in a really bad relationship for maybe for too long before they seek help or or you know exit or try to make it better because because uh, we somehow think that we should just, you know, the longer it is, the better it must be, you know, and, and, and you know, we have to suffer to make it work and, and you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately it's, it's, uh, it's quite difficult for people to live up to this template, you know, but we're so programmed to believe in, in monogamy that, you know, maybe when it doesn't work, um then people are uh, either unfaithful or you know maybe we you know move on to the next partner and we live in this kind of serial monogamy because we're like okay maybe that was not the one but maybe i will find the one next time you know um and i think a lot of people could be happier if 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 maybe we could see that okay it doesn't actually you know have to be that way you know it you it doesn't have to be either or it doesn't have to be black or white um but there is an alternative you know and it's not for everybody but you can actually you can actually be with multiple partners or you can be in a predominantly monogamous relationship but you could have you know consensual sex outside of that relationship um and I believe that that needs to be talked more about and it needs to become more widely accepted. And it's something that I think a lot of people would benefit from. You're right. It's, um, it's very much a societal, a cultural, religious um, theme that stops people talking about that. Um, how do you think that uh, that conversation um around sort of different types of relationships will expand over time i think the more uh, the more people talk about it uh, the more accepted um, it, it will become i mean it it needs to become more uh, more generally accepted as something that people just see okay this is an, this is an option it's an option that I can choose without being stigmatized, um, you know, without being bullied, without being sacked from work or without, you know, the neighbors thinking that I'm super weird or, you know, um, uh, but also uh, society, everything about society is created for, you know, like two, two people. Yeah. And so, there are also problems for for people who want to live as more than two um, in terms of you know 
parenting, for example, like parenting rights and and those kinds of things, right? So inheritance, um, yeah. So there are some um, some legal some some legal um, issues that need working on as well. Um, it is interesting, isn't it? Because we've seen such a huge move in the conversation around trans transgender and that being much more acceptable and. And yet you're right. This seems like a subject that nobody's talking about. So it is, I can see that it's a, it's a really interesting area for people, you know, for society to deal with at some point. Yeah, I think it is. And it is emerging, you know, now, like, like you say, you know, now there is, there is now all of a sudden we see a lot about transgender um, and at least in, in, in our part of of the world, we see a lot of acceptance for, like, for gay marriage and 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 you know that. But it, of course, it varies uh, varies a lot <laughs> across the world. Um, but and and for people who who want to live in some kind of uh, ethically non monogamous way, um, it is still difficult because they actually meet a lot of a lot of prejudice and a lot of uh, stigma um, so it's also this um, yeah um, marginalized group and yeah we just need I, mean, I think we need to talk about it more um, yeah I, I think it's I think I'm, I'm brilliant uh, it's brilliant that we're talking about it now because yeah, it, well, funnily enough, funnily enough, it's never featured in any of the previous podcast episodes. Um, so <laughs> funny <it's>, that. <laughs> but it's it's brilliant that it's it, that it's starting. We are starting to talk about it. So I mentioned the book that I read. Um, and I, I always ask guests of, for books that they found, and if not books, then other resources like podcasts or whatever. Mm. But what books have you found yourself? either recommending to others or found really um, powerful or useful in your life. And that can be around the sexology side of your life or the running side of your life or anything else for that matter. But um, what books have um, you found useful? So, uh, yeah, so actually, I mean, when we, uh, if we talk about relationships, um, there is a book, uh, there is a book that's called uh, Attached. Uh, Attached, are you anxious, avoidant, or secure? How the science of adult attachment can help you find and keep love. It's by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. And I think this is a really, really good book that uh, can be maybe quite enlightening for, for people in terms of understanding um, like how you attach to other people, how you behave uh, in relationships um, or when dating and also understanding other people's behaviors and maybe why they behave the way they do and what you can do to um, change dysfunctional patterns if you if you have them. Um, so I think it's a book that is useful for everybody. Brilliant. And it's never been recommended on the podcast before. So that's fantastic. Well done. <laughs> Are there any from the ultra running world or from, from running in general or even sport in general that you found um, interesting over the years? Um, so for ultra running, 
I almost have to, you know, it was a bit of a, it was a while ago since I actually um, read an ultra running book. <laughs> so uh, I'm searching my, um, I'm searching my Kindle library. What do I have in here? Um, yeah. But equally, if you're having to search, they probably didn't make quite as much impact as. Um... No, I mean it's probably just that it was a, it was a, it was a while ago, and now yeah. what I tend to read in terms of running is more, uh, sort of, training books, which are perhaps sort of, like, not boring, but but you know, like not super interesting. Um, but um, but Shane Bensey, uh, Shane Bensey has a book. Um, the lost art of running brilliant book. the lost art of running and i'm i'm featuring in it <laughs> you are featuring in it yes and, uh, <laughs> and i have and and uh and you know people people do contact me and say oh i read the book it was brilliant and uh, you know and so so yeah that is, is so, a great book i i love that book i think it's um for me that is up there with the born to runs and i just think it's there's so many wonderful stories in there but mm. also so much great advice in there so um uh yeah that's a that's a good recommendation well done um what so um to wrap things up um because this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation um the reason that there's so much um bird song in the background is your kind of your your you've created this life now living out of a van so Kind of with that in mind, what are you looking forward to um, going forward in your life? You know, what's exciting you uh, at the moment? Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm excited about uh, discovering new places. So, yeah, my husband and I live in a van. We, um, I mean, we do fly back home to Norway sort of once in a while. Um, uh, but we've, uh, yeah, we're in Spain at the moment, spent a lot of time in Gran Canaria. We're going to carry on um, traveling through Spain for the next couple of months. We're going to go to south of France uh, later this summer. And then I'm going to fly over to San Francisco in August because I'm doing, um, I'm doing um, another therapy course, actually, which is about... Uh, being a kink conscious therapist so I'm going to go over there um, and uh, explore San Francisco's kink community so that's going to be very interesting and these courses sound fantastic <laughs> <laughs> um, and so and then I we you know I, I don't really know where this will take us um, we'll uh, we'll see um, but uh, time has gone by so quickly so initially we didn't think we would spend like uh, uh, maybe longer than this in the van that maybe we would go back to Norway but no we're just gonna carry on um, and see where this takes us so I'm I'm just trying to make it work living as a sort of a digital nomad you know doing um, my running coaching doing uh, therapy with uh, individuals and and couples and you know whatever relationship constellations come my way and uh, studying and and exploring the world and um, and learning, <clears throat> you know. I think you also learn a lot about relationships when you live two people on 
10 square meters. Uh, and so that's also a good experience. I think it sounds fantastic, though. Obviously, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording about your sort of um, movements around Europe. And uh, yeah, I just think it's it's brilliant that that this, you know, and, and again, this is something that I suspect has this been born out of COVID in that this this nomadic sort of living through technology um, has was this was that what it initiated this? Um. I think what we we traveled a lot before COVID, and of course, then COVID kind of put a halt to the traveling. And then it was this spontaneous idea that we had. We said, "Oh, why don't we buy a camper van and travel and travel around Europe?" You know, I think I said it, and my husband was like, "Yeah, let's do it." <laughs> <laughs> and we were lucky enough to be able to do it, and and so. Um, it was born out of COVID in a way because. I think COVID has changed the way we travel. And there's definitely been a boom in traveling with camper vans and motorhomes. And, um, and, and so that's one part of it. The second part is that COVID has enabled the, the sort of the digital remote working. Um, and of course, it was already possible. But it's one thing if you are open-minded yourself, but if your clients aren't, it's difficult, right? Mm. So now what we've seen with COVID is that more and more people are comfortable with, for example, doing um, therapy via video call, coaching via video call. Okay, so you don't have to sit face-to-face in the same room. And that's why I can do it. Um, but if if all my clients would say no, we only want to see you if we can come and see you in person. Well, then that would be much more difficult. But then they wouldn't be the right fit client for you now. So you, you, they're better off finding somebody else, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, for now, and I might settle down. I might settle down uh, somewhere eventually. I mean, of course I will. But uh, what's also great about this is that I can work with clients all over the world, which is yeah. interesting. So um it provides a lot of a lot of opportunity yeah. i think fantastic mm. brilliant uh, elizabeth it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you thank you so much for for coming on the tribathlon podcast um where you mentioned um ultra.coach but where is the best place to find um you find out about you with regards to um, all the areas of your life so uh yeah so I have two websites, so elizabethbarnes.com. That's where I have, have sort of kept the therapy stuff. So that's sexology, relationship therapy, blogs about relationships. And then it's the same on Instagram. The Instagram is sort of, yeah, that and a bit uh, of private things. So that's Elizabeth Barnes. And then ultra.coach is more about the running side of life. And then we'll see what happens going forward whether they will be merged or not but i separated i separated the accounts because it seemed to be so confusing for people that they were the same so i don't know i don't know what's right <laughs> well i i remember hearing you losing followers and gaining followers at the same time when you oh, first started lost, introducing uh, lost so many followers i mean look people just people just get so embarrassed about stuff that has to do with sexuality and sex they just can't they can't 
cope, you know, I don't know. I just lost so many followers. <laughs> so I was actually surprised. I was like, I think it's interesting, but hey, you know. Well, that's, a, that's another topic in itself, isn't it? But <laughs> equally, I'm sure you're gaining different ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. Thank you so much. And I wish you um, every success with your coaching and with the sexology work and therapy work uh, going forward. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So, Claire, what did you make of the conversation with Elizabeth Barnes? It was it was great. She's just got so much experience. Um, and so many different fields that she's kind of worked in as well and um I just find it really interesting actually and and you can probably sort of comment on this like how people who are entrepreneurial or in um certain professional roles like how they how they are really competitive and you see that in sort of every area of their life um so I found that really you know really interesting to start off with even before we delved into kind of her career as an athlete and then kind of beyond as well yeah, I agree. And I think I think the the bit around earning a living for being a runner was mm-hmm. was an interesting. I've talked to other people about making a living from these sports. And it, it is, um, you know, it's a massive step, particularly when you're successful in. I remember particularly talking to Ruth Astle about that, um, you know, and and stepping away from, you know, a, a, a corporate role to make a living purely from this it's a, it is a big step but it's um it's really interesting what else did you take from the conversation with elizabeth so i was really interested to hear um to hear how she trained for um like environmentally trained for all of these events as well um because actually we were just having a conversation about when it's hot and like if you suddenly land somewhere and it's really really hot it takes obviously a while for adaptation so whether that's um at a certain um, number of meters above sea le- level or um, you know, so altitude or whether it's kind of the heat or the um, humidity. Um, so I found it really interesting how she did actually use heat chambers and things, but not always. Um, and it's just interesting to know the kind of protocols that she's looked into using um, in the past as well. Um, it, so it, I, that was, to me was really interesting. I, I, I think you're right. And it, it like it's bizarre that somebody from Sweden is yeah. proved, proved to be so successful in particularly desert races but yeah, yeah. you do wonder if things like the, the I mean I, yeah I suppose it's an obvious thing I mean yeah as we said as I said I'm I've been cycling in absolute scorchio heat in Chicago today and uh, yeah I probably should have been in the sauna for a few days leading up to it to condition it's myself it's a hard life Charlie being in yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> it, it hit me hard <laughs> um so uh so yeah no i thought i thought that was um uh, yeah really interesting and and the fact that altitude clearly takes a lot longer to adapt to than um than temperature um and and also that you know some of what came across is she because she sort of moves to different areas as well which actually a lot of our professional triathletes do don't they athletes are living in different sort of areas but if you're living in heat or living at altitude you can adapt as well so I wonder whether kind of over that time she's learnt to kind of adapt maybe more quickly certainly to kind of heat anyway um yeah that that for me and that's my kind of science head on was was really interesting to hear about and also packing of um packing of a bag because after our first ultra experience um you know like trying to roll things up I, I don't know how you carry all that food and everything else with you um so I'd love to see a bit more. She was talking about her um, her group session she runs as well, hasn't she? Like how to pack a bag. 
That yeah. would be amazing. I definitely, I definitely need to dial into that yeah. because yeah, you're right. I mean, we had more than more than enough kit to run with, and we could, we had you know we were topping up water every time we, we you know stopped. We'd got food every time we stopped. So yeah, carrying enough stuff for the whole of a five day race is um, and keeping it down to six and a half kilos sounds like an absolute mission. So um, yeah, I definitely definitely need to watch that in advance of doing doing a desert race of some sort. That's next on the list. I was thinking of of my kind of to do list actually this morning swimming when I was tired. Desert, so desert or Everest? Because I really liked hearing about both of those. Um, well, I like the idea of the race actually that that um, both her and Kerry talked about. Like that yeah. race does sound really good to me. Um, I thought you meant kind of climbing, properly climbing Everest. Oh no, 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 no. That's, no. that's something that I would not. So, do. But which would you get if you're going to do your first multi day? Which would you do through the desert or to base? I think actually, I think for me doing Marathon de Sable because that is something that I have wanted to do for years and years this is very much like when I first wanted to do Ironman because I used to live just outside Sherborne in Dorset so for those of you that know um, any of the Ironman races in the UK that was where I think that was our first UK race Um, and we used to see triathletes just cycling through the town so to me I was like that is what I want to do and I remember saying that's what I'm going to do at some point so yeah for me that that marathon in the desert is on my hit list for sure what about you which one would you choose then um i think that um i I, yeah it's difficult actually i think i'd all i mean i know mds is so iconic and everyone talks about it i really like the sound of the namib desert one yeah that also sounded good instead of mds so but i think i'd be more inclined to do the base camp everest first um because all three well clearly yeah. at some point you just have to do it. Oh, that's the, that's the long-term solution isn't it but i think first because i suppose everest a you haven't got the, the temperature issue i know you've got altitude which is potentially worse but you also they carry more stuff for you don't it they on everest mm-hmm. so it would kind of seem like a a good way of building up to the desert mm-hmm. if if they carry more kit for you but either way i mean i think they all sound awesome yeah um and the last, I mean, the last bit I just wanted to cover was the, um, so I know you had to dial out before the end of the, yeah. the interview, but what we certainly haven't covered sexology and consensual non-monogamous relationships in the triathlon podcast before. And I did think that that was. And I, and I had to dial out at that point. Yeah, you had to dial out just as it got interesting. Um, but it was, it I just, it really got me thinking actually, because you know in this day and age we are so you know in in the western world we are very tolerant of you know the transgender conversation different sexualities you know we 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 seem to be very very tolerant except as soon as we started talking about what i described as polygamy and she described as uh consensual non-monogamy um god that is that is such a mouthful which i probably (laughs) shouldn't say actually that might not be appropriate but um it, it yeah, you realise that actually it, that is a very different conversation. And I think the perception of that because of culture and religion and everything else is still, it, you know, it's a conversation I hadn't heard talked about. And I could see that that was an interesting area for her to um, kind of 
take her education towards. Um, so yeah, that 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 I thought was a really interesting. That did get me thinking about um, society and how that is isn't being talked about. But yeah. um, no, you're absolutely right. Well, e- even the actual word for it, I can't even remember what it is now. <laughs> the <laughs> consensual non-monogamous relationships. It, yes, yeah. it is quite challenging. But um, yeah. but yeah, no, it's a, she's a fascinating lady. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and now so many things her bow, isn't it? Like you know, yes. so many kind of. She. It sounds like you know she always wants to learn, be learning, and learn more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just Really, really good. Right. Well, on that note, um, we'll we'll until the next episode. Good luck with you, you know with your training and recovery after your racing at the weekend, and um, and for everyone else, keep on training. And remember, this podcast was sponsored by Thirty Three Fuel. So rethink your sports nutrition with Thirty Three Fuel, award winning natural sports nutrition for your performance, health, and a fitter future. It's the 33Fuel Fuelosophy. Get yours at 33Fuel.com, and if you use the discount code TRIBEATHLON or the link in the show notes, you'll get a discount at the checkout. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do review it and share it because it helps other people find what we think is really valuable learning lessons from amazing athletes. Um, So please do that. Um, You can also find the whole back catalogue at tribeathlon.com and you can also find out about the Tribe Athlon app which helps people find events, find people to train with and enjoy their events through their tribe. So check out tribeathlon.com.